Let us pray. Heavenly Father, prepare us for your word this morning. You can understand how this word might be hard for us to hear. But Lord, I pray if it might be speaking to us as a church, that it convicts us, that it might show us ways that we can go about doing this in the life of our church. Maybe it might speak to us individually, how hard it might be. But let, us, let it convict us, let it change us, and transform us. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, to be associated with this Hollywood studio was a thing of actors' dreams. This studio had produced movies like Shakespeare in Love, Goodwill Hunting, The English Patient, Cold Mountain. The who's who of Hollywood stars lavished praises on the leaders of the studio. Stars like Meryl Streep, Ben Affleck, Jennifer Lawrence, Kate Winslet. And more than any other studio leader, this um, producers had been mentioned among Oscar winners thank yous next to only Steven Spielberg. The name of the studio? The Weinstein Studio. We might not know much about Hollywood, but if you don't, know that this studio is a studio that now is defunct and closed. That just this week, the founder and leader of this studio, Harvey Weinstein, was sentenced to jail for his abuse of women that went on for 20 plus years. No one spoke up because they thought it was an empire that was too big to fail. Despite eight non-disclosure agreements and many in Hollywood knowing what was going on, no one said a thing for 20 plus years. In fact, Meryl Streep called Harvey Weinstein a god. Who would speak out against one that was at the top of his game? Well, today we see what has happened. We happened to this studio. It was silenced. The studio's reputation was lost. Its leaders in jail and many victims. Well, today we're going to see a church that also stands in silence to someone that is doing horrible things. In fact, this church is singing its own praises. They're bragging about their own progress. They're bragging about how they are a boom to the city of Corinth. They are saying that they are wise, they are spiritual, they are mature. And anyone would be blessed to be a part of them. But here comes Paul, who does not turn a blind eye to the sin that is in their midst. And he says, if you do not address this problem, this harm will not just be against the one committing the sin, and the victims. It will be against the church as a whole. And lastly, it will ruin the witness of the church to the world. So let's look. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm just going to concentrate on chapter 5 today. I know chapter 6 is in there too in your reading. But we're just going to do verses 1 through 13 this morning. A lot of exclamation points here. And I will try to speak in the way 
that might be Paul's diatribe to the church. Chapter 5, please pay attention to God's word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since they then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, a rivaler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. We've been going through the book of Corinthians. It's actually a letter. A letter from the founder of the church, Paul, who's been removed from them for about three to four years. And he's been hearing the crazy things that have been happening in this church. And he's responding to what he has heard. And we've been kind of waiting five weeks to hear actually what's happening in the church. And many times I feel like the five weeks is a build-up to getting to this point. And I wonder if we can even hear anything until we actually hear what's going to happen. I see it, this is a lot like sitting down our children or maybe being sat down by my parents and my parents saying something like this, we have something to tell you. When my parents sat me down to say that, I knew things were not good. And as much as they said all these things before they got to what really the issue was, I was not listening to any of those other things. I was just waiting to hear what it was they found out. Or maybe my kids find out when we sit them down and say that. And you're just kind of not listening. And that's how sometimes I feel we read the first four chapters of Corinthians. Just get to the point where, where the issue in the church is brought up and let's just deal with it. But Paul's saying you cannot throw away the first four chapters. 
You see, the issue that he's going to address in chapter 5 is a symptom of the greater sickness that is happening in the church in Corinth that he's addressed in the first four chapters. The division in the church. The not centering on Christ. The taking the influence of outside of the church and using them to get what they want inside the church. And these things have created the problems like we're going to see here in chapter 5. Here's also the thing. When we hear what's happened, when we hear about this individual and what they've done, many times we can just then focus on, oh, can you believe he or she did that. And then it turns into gossip and turns into their problem and focusing on what they are dealing with. Oh, let's shame them. Look how bad they are. Thing is, Paul is not centering his argument in chapter 5 on this individual. He doesn't even give him a name. Instead, his ire his problem in this chapter is on the, the action of the church and how they have acted towards this person. That they have done nothing about it. Despite this being a behavior, like he mentions in chapter 5, that's not even tolerated by the very sexually kind of promiscuous culture of Rome, they've allowed this to happen in the church. What? They've allowed this man... Sleep with his stepmom. Incest. That has been brought about in the Old Testament. Talked about that is not good. <laughs> that is talked about many times in the law. That is something that is not supposed to be ta uh, taking place. And here it is taking place in the church. Again, a sexual act that is not even approved by the pagan Romans. Why is the church tolerating this? It can be many reasons. One, maybe they just have laxity towards sexual sin. Though I think it's more likely that this individual that is doing this in the church is an esteemed person in the church. And in order not to ruffle feathers, to kick out someone that might have many people under his patronage, to not rise up tensions within the church, they let this individual go about with their sin. I think one of the most chilling aspects of the Harvey Weinstein situation is the complicit nature of Hollywood to go about it, to allow it to happen. Rose McGowan, an actress who was in her early 20s, a young woman who was abused by Harvey Weinstein spoke out. She finally told her story to the public. And when reporters tried to confirm her story that he had been doing this to multiple women, Hollywood and those that were around Harvey Weinstein told the New York Times no comment. Because they were fearing being blacklisted, fearing that his power might be brought against them, and they said nothing to corroborate what Rose McGowan saw, 
and what later came to fruition. And finally, justice was brought this week. Could you imagine this young woman going out and saying these things? This is what she said when no one corroborated her story to the New York Times. She said this, Hollywood, your silence is deafening. How much more should Paul be incensed when these people in the church have been bought by, a, by the price by Christ, have been saved by him, they have been delivered from sexual sin, have been delivered from those ways, and been brought into life in Christ, that now they go about and allow such a thing in the church, even though they're supposed to be identified with Christ. And they are boasting. They are boasting in their spiritual maturity. Boasting in their wisdom. Boasting in how they are as a church. And they allow this to happen. Church, your silence is deafening. Paul saying, you know what can happen if you allow such sin to just fester in people's lives? To allow such sin that is not dealt with, allow such sin that is continuous and people are not repenting for it, do you know what it will do? It will ruin that individual. It can corrupt then the whole church. And also it will ruin the witness to the world. Let's look first to the individual. Verses 3 through 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his, though his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, Paul is not with them physically. And people are wondering, well, what power then do you have? You're just writing this letter. You're far away. We have these other influential leaders that are around. How can you even speak to us in this situation? And Paul's saying, well, I might not be with you physically, but I'm with you spiritually. And this authority that I have that has been given by the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking judgment upon you. You see, for this culture, power came through persuasion came through having all these followers and this patronage and all this power. And also you had this force to change people. That's not what Paul had. He wasn't there physically. He didn't have that power of persuasion by being with them. He didn't have some army that was around him to tell them to take this pe person out of the church. But Paul is saying, I have a power that is different, that is actually greater than any power you might see in the Roman Empire. You see, I stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings. One that is able to even go into the deepest places of our hearts. Who rules kingdoms in his way. A different standard than what the world sees as power. But one that convicts the heart. I do wonder, what power do we have as a church? 
We don't have power to throw someone in jail, an army to go after people, although people in church history have tried to do those kind of things. But that's not the power that Paul is talking about. See, the power of God is demonstrated in a servant, Jesus, who also defeated death. So in a secular world that wonders, so what? What do you have? How can you tell me what to do? Paul is saying, I give a power that's able to affect change. And this power should be able to affect change in the church because it's the power of the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when he says, deliver this man to Satan to the destruction of the flesh, he's meaning let him go outside of the church. Let him go to the place where Satan's influence is. And then when he is taken out of the body of Christ, under this grace of the church, then it will maybe lead him to continue on in that carnal nature. Kind of be blown by the winds of the culture. Paul talks about this in Romans, of course. And this is, might be what he's talking about here. That if you let him outside the church, then he will just go about living in this kind of sinful way and he will see the destruction of it. And hopefully, in seeing being outside the church, he might see then his need to be back in the body of Christ, to repent and to see that his soul might be saved. This conversation might look a little bit like around the dinner table where my kids might say, I don't like these rules. I don't like this food. And I say tongue in cheek, okay, then you can live outside of this house. You can get your own food, right? That's a, that's a dad thing to say at times, right? You know, when you're just at your wit's end. And then they realize it's cold outside. People don't cook like mom does. I'm not going to go out there. I like this. I like being in this family. It's good for me. See, this is what Paul is trying to say. Let him see that he was when outside of the church family, what it will lead to destruction. So that his soul might be saved, that he might repent, rather than just turning a blind eye to it. Quite a juxtaposition of pictures this week for me. One, seeing Harvey Weinstein cuffed, going to jail, still not contrite. And I wondered, as I see this guy going to jail, if he would have been around a church community, if he would have been around people that might have corrected the behaviors that he was doing, he might not have gotten to that place. That's one picture I saw this week. And the other picture I saw was yesterday, a good friend of mine who went in front of 200 men in our presbytery, fellow elder at a church in Wisconsin, a worship leader at a church, who a couple years ago had an affair on his wife. The church deposed him of his role as worship pastor and his elder. They disciplined him. 
He repented. He confessed. His marriage was restored. And yesterday, in front of 200 men, he shared his testimony with tears of joy. Though he lost his job at a Christian school, though he lost his position as an elder, though he lost his position as the worship leader of the church, he had not lost his soul. And he cried in joy. He cried in joy that the church loved him so much to forgive him and pursue him in his sin. Do we think we are doing good as a church by letting people live in their besetting sin? Oh, I don't want to ruffle feathers. You know, this would, this would cause too much ugliness. This is an important person in the church. I wouldn't want to call out this sin. But in fact, by not calling out, we are doing more harm to them. You know, I, I've tried so hard. I do this in the membership class and stuff like that. I, I try so hard to try to frame church discipline in a very um, nice way, in a cuddly way. And I think I've realized over being in the church for 15 years and being a part of church discipline cases that no matter how you frame it, church discipline is ugly. I have rarely seen people that I've gone to to discipline or as elders gone to discipline that they've said, thank you. You're right. I repent. No, that's not usually the case. Instead, there is anger and frustration and how dare you. And it makes sense when we see that conflict and see the confusion, the ugliness of sin, we don't want to have the conflict. And we try to avoid it. And we think that ignoring it is the loving thing. Where the truth is, if we really love someone, we will deal with it. Even in its ugliness. You see, there's complexity in American culture with this issue. See, the only church in Corinth was this church. But here we have churches all over the place now, right? And the complexity of church discipline is this. When someone has an issue, someone has a sin issue that is gone after in the church, people usually leave. And guess what? They can just find another one. The church down the road. Or this church over there. And people just hop from church to church to church. And then when it gets brought up again, which it will, if it's not dealt with, guess what? It's going to come to the surface again. When it comes to the surface again, are they going to deal with it? Or are they going to run? This is the American dream. Freedom. I go to where I want. No one can tell me how to live. But now maybe you're at Emmaus Road. 
oh, great, there's this fellowship break. People actually know me, right? I got to talk to people. The elders want to shepherd people. They actually want to know who's coming forward and taking communion. And guess what? You can't hide. I know that's scary for people to hear that, especially in American culture, because we love to hide. But that's a good thing. Because you know what? Your hiding might actually cause your soul to be removed from God for eternity. Rather than dealing with besetting sin that shows you that you don't even identify or are in the family of God. I know this is a hard word. But my prayer is that even in this American culture where we run and run and run, that we might deal with where our relationship with God is. And some of us that are running from a sin that is continuing and just living in it and not repenting of it. I'm not talking about people struggling in sin. I'm not talking about that. I'm people that are saying they are living in this and they're saying, I can do that and there's no problem. Paul goes on, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, uh, Paul is giving us a picture of the Passover. And it's fitting as we are in the season of Lent that we'll get to the place of Jesus' Last Supper, which he is celebrating the Passover meal. The Passover meal, again, is celebrating how the people of Israel were delivered out of Egypt and how they did not put yeast in the bread because it took time to, to rise. So instead they had unleavened bread so it could be baked quickly so they could get out of Egypt. And also he gives us a picture of the Passover, that they took a lamb and the blood and they put it on the doorposts of their homes. So when the angel of death came and passed through Egypt, they took the firstborns of those that the blood was not on the door. So this is what the image that Paul is giving to the people. And he is saying that you know, if you leave leaven, having leaven in the house at Passover was a sign of not being obedient to God, of taking it out of the bread and following God is be able to go quickly. And so leaving it or having it during the Passover time was a sign of not following God in his commands. And many times what would happen when you would make leavened bread is that you would take an old piece of the bread, you would save it, and then you would bring it into a new piece of bread that you were making. And that bread that still had the yeast in it and those chemicals would be brought into the bread and then it would rise. But many times what would happen in that time is sometimes that old bread would get bad. And if you did not know that it was bad and you brought it into the new loaf, it would actually contaminate the whole loaf. So Paul is saying, if you leave this besetting sin in the church, it can corrupt the whole church. See, Paul is saying, you're boasting. 
You're boasting. You're thinking that you are wise. You think you have these strategies that are good. You are hiding this sin that's in the church. And little do you know, even in all your successes that you think you have as a church, in fact, this sin that this person is doing is showing that you are contaminated. That there is a serious problem. Pride can blind the culture of corruption in any organization. These outside strategies you're borrowing from Roman culture are causing problems in the church. The key verse of chapter 5, I think, is found in verse 7. It's actually the middle of the passage. Sometimes the Bible works like that in a chiastic structure where the middle is the important place. Verse 7, it says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul is saying if you really want to deal with this issue, you have to realize who you are. Before I get to the commands, the imperatives of what you're supposed to do, you have to realize the indicatives, who you are. You have been redeemed. It's not what you have done, it's but what Christ has done. You used to be this way, but now you are washed. In chapter 6, you'll see it says, And such were some of you. You were this way, but now you are this way because of Christ. You have been saved and washed and cleansed. And it makes sense. He's giving this idea of a feast like we do here on Sunday morning. It's a picture of who we are. We are identified and unified with Christ. How, if we're unified with Christ, could we live this way? Could we be this way? This is no longer our identity. It's a recent book that's gotten a lot of popularity in academic circles. It's by Yuval Devin. It's a book called A Time to Build. He's not a Christian. And he is making this argument that the reason that there is such depression in our culture right now, such division in our culture right now, such a high suicide rate in our culture and a lack of direction among young people around us is because institutions no longer have the right direction that they used to in the past. Example, colleges. Instead of colleges dispersing, this is how you're supposed to live, this is how you're supposed to be, this is how you form people and who they are supposed to be as good people, as good character. Instead, what college has become is students shape the way the college should be. That's just one example. He's saying that's happened throughout institutions. What's happened is institutions don't have standards that they they then bring on people. Instead, people bring their own standards and then impose them upon institutions. Okay? Does that make sense? People grabbing with that? Okay. This is what is so concerning about his book. A non-Christian. Do you know what he says? Do you know where this is also happening? The church... People come with their own ideas, their own thoughts, and they say, guess what? 
we're going to let our ideas then influence the church. Oh, it sounds like a little leaven, doesn't it? That corrupts the whole thing. Versus what Paul is saying, it's not about you. The starting point is not you. The starting point is what Christ has done for you. That you've been united with him. This is the standard. And you live by that. He shapes you in who you're supposed to do be. Not you shaping what the church should be. Tell me how many people want to hear that in America right now. But that's exactly what we need. The church to be the church. Here's this pastor up here yelling at me, right? You might think. But the truth is, I'm just trying to communicate the standard that Christ has given us in his word. That we are supposed to be conformed to that. Guess what? I many times don't want to be conformed to what he says. But I need to be. Because if I'm not, it will corrupt myself and it will corrupt the church. Because the head of the church is not me and it's not you. It's Christ who has transformed us into a new body, a holy temple, right? Is that what Paul says earlier? He goes on. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. See, Paul has had an earlier correspondence with them and they've taken a wrong interpretation. They have thought that by him saying association that they should not interact with anyone that is doing these things. And he's saying, if that was the case, you wouldn't be, be able to be in the world at all. Because that's just the way it works. You're interacting with people that are doing these things. It's a great word for us as the church to say, well, we could remove ourselves from society or not interact with those that are outside. No, you just can't do that. And that's not what we're supposed to do. I love what he says here in verse 12, for what have I to to do with judging outsiders? Man, it's amazing how we expect non-Christians to act as Christians. Why are we imposing, imposing our standards upon them? They haven't been transformed by Christ. It makes sense they'd live by a different sexual ethic and they think we're crazy in the church. It's not, it's not weird that there are drunkards, that there are idolaters, that they follow things. That's just the way it works in the world. Why should we expect non-Christians to act as Christians? Now hear me, it does not mean that we should not, you know, we don't have any standards that we should live by in society or anything like that. But I think the point is that Paul is saying is, you're judging them first when you're not dealing with the issues even in your, in your own body. So the first attempt, what this is trying to do, again, I, I, I'm amazed by people that look at these lists. There's quite a few lists here about 
drunkards, idolaters, revilers, swindlers, all those kind of things. And many times people use these verses then to to condemn society, but that's not what Paul is doing here. He's condemning what's happening inside of the church. And this is what he says, and again, anyone that loves the passage in the Sermon on the Mount says you shall not judge. Again, you need to look at that passage in context, especially verse Um, the latter part of verse 12 in this passage, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? (laughs) He's saying we should judge one another. Of course, within gentleness and and kindness and, and patience and foreboding, but that is our role as the church. Some have taken this passage, of course, when it says of that not even to eat with such a one as an extreme to say when someone has been taken out of the church, have been disciplined, the buzzword, of course, is excommunication, that no longer shall we talk to them. I do not think it's talking about that. I think it's talking about the context of the Lord's Supper. That we should not be inviting them to the Lord's Supper, to union with Christ, because they have behaviors that show they are not united with Christ. You can still have conversations with them. You should still love them like you would love any non-Christian. But now you cannot identify them as a brother or sister in the Lord. So if someone is taken out of the church and you see them at Um, the supermarket or see them in town, your response shouldn't be, I should walk the other way. Oh, no. No, it should be love and kindness. How are you doing? We miss you. And treating them and acting, hey, these are non-Christians that I should love. You see, when the church does this, what a witness to the culture that calls us hypocrites. That we actually correct ourselves. We call people to repentance. That we live by a standard that we say we live by. We fail at it many times, but it's not about perfection. It's not about doing it all right. It's saying that sin does not, no longer owns me. I'm no longer enslaved to it. I can still struggle, but I am a new creation. This kind of work can show the world that we are distinct. We are not some club that likes to sing songs. Not some organization that just likes to help people out. Not some academic group that likes to read good books. But instead, we are a community that's been transformed by the gospel. And we believe it. And we live it out. Even if it's hard. You see, if that's the case... The case is that we have been washed and sanctified and justified. That Christ is our Passover lamb that has forgiven us and we are identified with him. Then we will correct the brother or sister that is living in sin. Then we will take the church's identity seriously that we are in Christ. And then we will show the world We are unique because we have been saved by the King. This is good news. 
Church discipline is good news. And I pray that we would be a church that does it well with humility and love and graciousness. Please pray for your elders and your pastors that we would do that well in this body.